I'm very excited that Dan Frumkin can be here um, and that he was willing to come. If nothing else, he made me read those three Trump interviews, which um, <laughs> I, I had glanced at them, but like I made myself read the whole thing, and I think that was actually very useful and kind of important. So I'm sure we'll be talking about that. Um, for the people who are in the class, we had we Googled you a little bit. Last well, good. Week. That was to, to get some background information. But for those of you who aren't in the class all of the time, um, you know Dan has had a very distinguished career. We had a little bit of almost overlap at the Miami Herald. Um, but after that, he went. To, was it right, right after the Herald? You went to the Washington Post online. No, I went to the Orange County Register in, oh, in California. Oh, okay. For so the Orange County. A lot of years, uh, so. uh, the good um, when they used to be back when it was a great regional newspapers. Yeah. Great, great news war back right. then. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and then to the Washington Post was it right? Uh, actually, I had a, a journalism fellowship at the okay. University of Michigan for oh, okay. a year, and then spent a year building a web operation for Education Week, which is a weekly uh, newspaper, and then the Washington Post. Okay, so. and th where um, he wrote an online column on the White House, um, and then went to the Huffington Post, and then the Intercept, and now is an independent journalist, which gives him a lot of ability to look at the press and the press coverage. And um, so, what we're going to be doing here today, and you know, the class also knows this is um, one of the things is looking at these particular interviews and what they say about the relationship between um, Trump and the press and then um, we're also going to be thinking about what makes good questions um, how you can ask good questions how you can get the kind of information out of people that is meaningful so we'll this will sort of serve a, a dual function um, but with that I'll give you Dan Brunker. well thank you guys um, thanks for inviting me. And it sounds like a, a really great class, and I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward uh, to vicariously experiencing your talking to these journalists going forward with a little sort of devil on your shoulder with my voice uh, about uh, giving them a little bit of hell. Um, because, you know, what you will find from all of them is that going into an interview, going into any situation, you know, the pressure is to find news, right? It's to find something new, is to get, get somebody to say something they haven't said before, uh, and then go with that. And there's nothing, you know, that's what I did. I was spent, you know, 15 years as a local journalist and did that myself. But when you're covering the White House, when you're covering Washington, especially when you're covering Donald Trump, there are some other uh, factors to consider. Um, for one thing, right now the news cycle is moving so incredibly fast that you know you have a scoop and it's the half-life is uh, you know 22 minutes I mean it's just incredible how fast things move um, the other is that he of course changes his mind all the time so just because he's told you one thing in an interview doesn't mean he'll say something say the same thing next and then of course he lies all the time so so journalists are under a lot of pressure to figure out how to how to talk to this guy um, that are the same kind of pressures that I think journalists are under when they talk to anybody, but wildly more so because this guy is such a fluke. Um, the uh, the sit-down interview with the president, though, is one particular thing. I, I don't know if you're talking to anybody who's actually had a chance to sit down with him, but yeah, the sit-down interview is a unique unique thing. Um, I, I cover the White House and realize that when, for instance, at a at a at the press conference, the president controls. The everything. You can't ask follow-up questions. The reporters all have their own little questions that their bosses want them to ask, and there's no so there's no uh, thematic unity or, or coherence or cohesion to a press conference. But when you have a sit-down interview, you, the reporter, can drive that interview, um, and uh, and I think that's that's really important. Uh, 
uh, with Trump. Now, mind you, the argument you will get about when I say, you know, you need to be tougher on, on the president is I'll say, well, we'll lose access. You know, we, we won't invite us for a second interview. Um, this is true. It's possibly a real problem. Uh, on the other hand, uh, he might not invite you anyway. Um, and, uh, and, and to some extent, he seems to do, like getting challenged a little bit, at least. Um, so it's, it's funny. If I um, were covering the White House or I was an editor uh, running a, a White House, you know, running that, I used to be, I'd say, you have uh, two reporters, good cop, bad cop. Um, this actually worked remarkably well back under Bush uh, at the Washington Post when there was uh, Mike Allen, the sycophantic uh, bootlicker, and Dana Milbank, the uh, incredibly cynical uh, jerk. And they covered the Bush White House pretty well, as well as anybody did, at least back then, um, because Dana would write all the nasty stories and then Mike would apologize for them. Um, but uh, right now, I think you need not just good cop, bad cop, but also Googling monkey. Um, so that basically you have somebody at the table or somebody you know, with a, a, access to the earpiece who's saying, what he just said, it's not true and here's why. Um, because he just makes up these incredible fabrications out of nothing. Um, it is astonishing what reporters have let him get away with. Uh, I, I know you guys were assigned uh, these interviews, um, but uh, even if you read them, uh, I want to go over a few of them because they're just astonishing in their... Uh, in how ludicrous they are. Um, the, the, I had not read the, my, the Time Magazine one um, when I wrote the pointer piece. Um, I'd only read the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times interview. And then somebody pointed out that there had actually been an interview with Trump about his credibility. And I said, oh my god, how exciting. I had no idea any reporter was courageous enough to actually sit down with Trump and talk to him about his credibility. And, and in fact, it turns out that they had told Trump ahead of time that that's what they wanted to talk about. Okay, so it starts off, Michael Shearer, who was a classic Washington reporter, uh, and I say that in all the negative possible connotations, um, says, do you want me to give you a quick overview of the story? And Trump's like, already knows about it. He goes, yeah, it's a cool story. I mean, it, the concept is right. I predicted a lot of things, Michael, he said. Like Sweden, he says, I make the statement, everyone goes crazy. The statement he made was, he said, he said on one day in February, last night there was this terrible riot in Sweden. They're really losing control of things over there. Okay, what he had seen on Fox News was a clip of a riot from four years earlier. Okay. Uh, as it happened, two days later, there was a small riot in Sweden. From, uh, in, in one of these uh, Islamic neighborhoods. So he says, Sweden, I make the statement, everyone goes crazy, which they do because it was completely made up. The next day they have a massive riot and death and problems. So he's saying basically, I was right. Even though what he said was it happened last night and it happened two days later and it wasn't a big deal. Uh, NATO, he said, uh, obsolete because it doesn't cover terrorism. They fixed that. Uh, this, it was not, it had always had a terror component and they didn't fix anything. Um, uh, and then, and then <laughs> Michael Shearer, rather than sort of saying, sir, let's dig into these a little bit more, says, but, but there's other things you said that haven't panned out. <laughs> I mean, it's astonishing. The, the, so, oh my lord. 
Um, so, so then he says, look, look, you have used disputed statements. This is Michael Shearer says. Uh, this is one of them that's, that has disputed the claim that three million undocumented people voted in the election. This was Trump's uh, explanation for why it is that he lost the popular vote. Uh, it's that three million undocumented immigrants voted for Hillary. Now, there's not the tiniest iota of evidence of this. None. Zero. Nothing. Nobody has ever said this except for Trump. Um, he says, well, I think I will be proved right about that, too. Michael moves on. The claim that Muslims celebrated on 9-11 in, in, in New Jersey. Again, this is one of these claims he made repeatedly during the uh, campaign. Um, Trump says, well, if you look at the reporter, he wrote that story in the Washington Post, which was not at all the case. And this is the same reporter, I think, who he made fun of because he has a physical disability. Um, so then Michael says, okay, but my idea is that whatever the reality of what you are describing, the fact that they are disputed makes them a more effective message that you are able to spread the message further that more people get excited about it than it gets on TV. So Michael Shearer, the reporter, is basically saying, you are really onto something here with your total crazy lies because they get more coverage than if you had spoken the truth and you get more airtime. Ooh, good for you. Uh, yeah. Um, so he says, but there's no evidence that three million people voted. And Trump says, we'll see. After the committee, I have people say it was more than that. Like, whenever he says, I have people say, or I've heard that, or believe me, you know, it's just going to be an absolute whopper. Um, I'll, 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 I, I can't stop. I'm sorry. Uh, but would you agree that some of the things you have said haven't been true? You say that Ted Cruz's father was with Lee Harvey Oswald. Well, that was in a newspaper, Trump says. Uh, that was in a newspaper. I wasn't, I didn't say that. I was referring to a newspaper. <laughs> Uh, and do we, know, do we remember which newspaper? I'm, I'm sorry, I'm no, jumping please, in here. Please. It was in the National Enquirer. It was, the, okay. it was in the National Why Enquirer. do you say that I have to apologize? I'm just quoting the newspaper. He talks about quoting people from Fox News and, and how they're, they're serious journalists. And, um, and then the country believes me. He said, hey, I went to Kentucky two nights ago. We had 25,000 people in a massive basketball arena. There wasn't a seat. They had to send people away. So that's basically, that is always his answer for why... You are, don't you have a credibility problem? No, a bunch of people showed up uh, to hear me. The country's not buying it. It is fake media. Um, Trump says, okay, so, so uh, Michael Shear says, okay, so you don't worry that your credibility, that if you've cited things that later turn out to be wrong based on anonymous sources, that that hurts you. Uh, name what's wrong. I mean, honestly, says Trump. And Shear just drops it. He doesn't do it. He starts saying Fox News said, and then Trump goes off on Brexit. And then finally gets back to the Sweden thing. But even in that Sweden quote, you said, look at what happened on Friday in Sweden. But you're now saying you're referring to something that happened the following day. <laughs> Trump. No, I'm saying I was right. <laughs> this is, that is what I'm talking about. You can phrase it any way you want. A day later, they had a horrible, horrible riot in Sweden. And you saw what happened. And then people said, you know, Trump was right. What am I going to tell you? I tend to be right. I'm an instinctual person. I happen to be a person that knows how life works. And at the end of his interview, he basically says, hey, look, in the meantime, I guess I can't be doing so badly because I'm president and you're not. Like an Al Franken line. Anyway. And that, that was, the, that was the, the nugget that was covered uh, in the uh, more general newspaper yeah. press afterwards. And, and the story was, was, was not much better than the interview. Uh, 
it just talks about how this is an issue, his credibility. So amazing to me, you have the reporter even going in saying, well, you need to talk about your credibility and letting him lie after lie after lie, uh, coming up with new lies, coming up with old lies, just deflecting any of these questions. Um, basically, I mean, to the extent that I have a solution, and we'll talk about this a little, a little bit later, it, it, you have to go deeper with him. You can't just let him sort of hit a topic and then bounce off. Um, and then it, the, the, the story about Trump, to me, the fundamental story is that the guy has no idea what he's doing. He's in way over his head. He doesn't understand government. He doesn't understand what he's doing at all. And he has these little sound bites, most of which aren't true, that get him a lot of press. Um, but so you need to go deeper. And that's what the sit-down interview is for. Um, the Wall Street Journal interview, I'm just going to go over a few parts of it. I mean, the very beginning, first of all, it's, it's, it's conducted, this is always a tip-off that things are going to be bad. It's conducted by the editor-in-chief of the newspaper, okay? At a, that's a newspaper that's owned by Rupert Murdoch, all right? So technically, theoretically, at the Wall Street Journal, there's always been a separation between the newsroom and the editorial board. This is not really the case so much anymore. There are still some very fine reporters at the Wall Street Journal doing very good work, but their boss is Gerald Baker, and he is a Murdoch, Murdoch stooge. So, he's, so he starts, and again, there's another thing that reporters can do. This man lives in a bubble of adoration. Everybody is telling him how smart he is, how wise he is, how perspicacious he is, how he predicted things that happened, even though they didn't. Um, they need to come in and say, look, this is, you know, there are some serious concerns about your ability to be president of the United States. Um, and instead, Baker starts off saying, hey, consumer confidence is at a 17-year high. Um, and Trump immediately pivots. They're trying to ask him about the economy. Trump immediately pivots. Last night, it was amazing. I was, you know, I was in West Virginia doing certain things and making a speech to the Boy Scouts, and that was some crowd. That was an incredible crowd. Okay. The people, he was talking to the Boy Scouts annual jamboree, all right? Nobody was there to hear him. They were there for the Boy Scouts jamboree. But this crowd, his, his, this is how he measures himself, is crowds. Um, little little uh, aside, as, as Gerald Baker uh, says hi to Ivanka Trump, because they're friends from Southampton, and they both have little girls named Arabella, and a little bit of talk about that, that's lovely. Um, Ivanka says, oh, I liked your editorial today, very nice. Now, technically, again, the news side doesn't have anything to do with the editorial side. Baker says, oh, good, good. <laughs> well, you see, you know, my colleagues write those, so they'll be, they'll be, yeah, cut off. Uh, Baker, what are you most proud of in the first six months? Trump quickly says, Supreme Court regulation, and then he says, I've had tremendous and tremendous, look, I had 45,000 people there yesterday. It's the biggest crowd they've ever had. Then uh, he's asked, he mentions infrastructure and uh, the, the journal. In, the, in this transcript, when it says WSJ, it means it's somebody other than the editor-in-chief who's actually trying to conduct a, a reasonable interview about business stuff. Says, are you confident that you can get infrastructure passed? And, uh, and Trump goes off about Hillary. She spent hundreds of millions of dollars on negative ads. Right, that goes on for like four paragraphs. Um, and then he ends up talking about Ohio and how his numbers are in Ohio right now, which is a swing state. Uh, then back to, what else, West Virginia. What a scene, huh? That was a scene, yes, says Wall Street Journal. Biggest crowd they've ever had. What did you think, Trump says. 
I think you're a megalomaniac. Uh, I thought it was really interesting speech in the context of the Boy Scouts, says the Wall Street Journal, barely containing the sarcasm. He delivered this incredibly political uh, rally-type speech in front of the Boy Scouts. I forget exactly what, he did a couple things that were just absolutely astonishing. The Boy Scouts is not a political group. He just gave his, his not most noxious political rally boost. Uh, they, they seem to get a lot of feedback from former scouts, says the Wall Street Journal. Trump, did they like it? Wall Street Journal, it seemed mixed. They loved it, Trump says. It wasn't, it was no mix. From the time I walked out on the stage, because I know, and by the way, I'd be the first to admit mixed. I'm a guy that will tell you mixed. There was no mix there. That was a standing ovation from the time I walked out to the time I left. And then he says, and I got a call from the head of the Boy Scouts saying it was the greatest speech that was ever made to them, which was a complete lie. Never got a phone call. Sir, can I ask you about taxes? <laughs> <laughs> what are the main goals? Um, I want to achieve growth. We're the highest tax nation in the world, essentially, you know, of the size. We're the highest tax nation in the world. Totally not true, by the way. Our taxation, our corporate tax rate is quite high, but the effective tax rate, the actual amount the corporation is paying, is very low for developed countries. Uh, we have nobody knows what the number is. I mean, it used to be when we talked during the debate, 2.5 trillion. So he's changing the subject to actually the issue of all this money that companies have stowed, stored overseas because they don't want to pay taxes on it, and they know that eventually there'll be a Republican president and they can get a tax get, they can get a, 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 a tax holiday. So he says, and so he starts talking about Mr. Elegant. I mean, that was a great debate, and he's talking about his debate performance now. This is August, okay? I mean. The, the, the Time Magazine interview was in March, but this is August. He's, he's, he's been president for almost six months. Um, he talks about all his great relationships with foreign leaders and how he had this conversation with a foreign leader where they complained about their GDP being at 9%. There is no foreign leader whose GDP is at 9%. Nobody complains about it. Um, he, uh, Gerald Baker, the Wall Street Journal guy, makes a joke about how Gary Cohn is now, a middle, gets, is now middle income. Gary Cohn is the former chairman and CEO of Goldman Sachs, who is temporarily working at the White House. And according to the Wall Street Journal, that makes him middle income. All right, I'm, I'm going to finish up. The, uh, the New York Times interview wasn't nearly so bad, but they didn't push him. They didn't push on anything. And they basically treated him like a normal president. And my argument is that any president needs to be pushed in an interview. I mean, I was very, very unhappy uh, at how uh, easy and uh, kid-gloved the interviews were, certainly with Bush, but also with Obama, especially towards the end of his presidency when he was going on his, on his victory lap tour. He only did interviews with basically fundamentally sympathetic reporters uh, who, who, who did not press him, uh, who did not press the critique from the left, which was that he hadn't done enough. And, and the most obvious critique is, if you, you didn't see this coming, and you've built up the powers of the presidency enormously on the assumption that it would be held by people who are at least relatively sane, uh, on the assumption that Hillary was going to be president. Um, you blew it. He blew a lot of stuff. So anyway, all right, so I could go on and on, but uh, you, so when, you, when you're interviewing anybody, you've got to think about Yes, not pissing them off, sure. But that shouldn't be your only criteria. Um, 
you need to think about what is it that this person can tell you? What is the story that you, if, I mean, if you interview people who you don't know what the hell is going on, you're asking open-ended questions. If you, you, when you don't know what's going on, you're just trying to find out what's going on. But if you're interviewing somebody in public office who, who, has, who is manifestly trying to tell a version of the truth that is not the truth, it's your obligation to, 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 to address that and to, and to push. So I, I guess uh, what I wanted to do now was to talk more about why you think the press in this context didn't push. Yeah. And um, in some ways, I'm going to challenge you a little bit on what you sure. said in your, in your piece and, and you began to say here, which was the problem was that they treated him like a normal president. And I think in some sense that's true in the sense that they weren't calling out his lies, right? So they kind of let a lot of things slide. But I don't think they treated him like a normal president in the sense of pushing him on policy, right? I mean, I can't imagine that you talk to Obama about what the tax rate should be and you would let him talk about Mr. Elegant. By the way, who is Mr. Elegant? Well, Obama's <laughs> problem was that he would actually answer you in about 20 minutes of absolutely perfect prose <laughs> and you wouldn't have a chance for a second question. Right. <laughs> okay. So that's a different problem. But but this is. I mean, this is. I mean, there. I don't think in any of these interviews. Mm. I mean, they're they're starting with the assumption this is a person mm. who doesn't really know. I mean, they they kind of grant him that. You think so? Right. Yeah. Um, so so that would be one thing. But again, I think. What I, I would love for you to share your thoughts on, and, and other people, both the students and, and some of the faculty mm -hmm. are here, um, are why this happened. And let me, let me I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do what you did, um, it, which is give you an, ex an example from Please. the interview. Um, and I thought this was, I mean, there was a lot of astonishing things, but this I, I really didn't get, especially from the person who, who responded in the question. So there's one point in the Times exchange. Um, where Trump says, they're talking about health care. Um, and he's talking to Maggie Haberman, who has been lauded as one of the great White mm -hmm. House reporters of the moment. And he says, but what it does, Maggie, it means it gets tougher and tougher. He's talking about getting health care. As they get something, it gets tougher. Because politically, you can't give it away. Of course, none, I mean, you have no idea what any of this means, that's but right. that's okay. Um, so pre-existing conditions are a tough deal because you are basically saying from the moment the insurance, you're 21 years old, you start working, and you're paying $12 a year for insurance, and by the time you're 70, you get a nice plan. Here's something when you walk up and say, I want my insurance. It's a very tough deal, but it is something that we're doing a good job of, right? <laughs> so he says that. And the, the press, the story after this was, what is he talking about? I mean, nobody pays... Any of you guys start paying $12 a year, and then when you retire, you're going to get be able to take. I mean, it's not. I mean, there's no. But what's amazing and what nobody at, noticed is her follow-up question, mm -hmm. right? So, what would you think you should say after that? What the hell are you talking about, sir? Yes, I yeah. mean, you, you kind of <laughs> have to do that, right? But what she says is, "Am I wrong in thinking?" I've talked to you a bunch of times about this over the last couple years, but you are generally of the view that people should have health care, right? I mean, I think you come at it from the view of, and then he says, I think we had a great meeting, I think we had a great meeting. So why when Trump says that about your start paying $12 a year for mm -hmm. insurance and when you're 70 you have a good health plan, is the response from Maggie Haberman, 
um, you think people should have health care. How did that happen? Because it's too difficult to parse what he says and then ask him about it, and it's too controversial. She, the, the, ever since I've been writing about the White House, people, the number one question they ask is, why is the press more, not more aggressive? Why do they do this? And part of it is, uh, why is going on about this? The post 9-11, immediately after 9-11, when George Bush was President of the United States, uh, the press basically vested him with great abilities that he, they knew he did not have. Um, and they did that because they were because the country was needed, they felt the country was rallying behind the president, they made, thought it made sense for the country to rally behind the president, and they didn't want to be seen as disloyal. And that, that is the same, the same dynamic going on here, which is that you don't want to be the person who insulted the president, took on the president, made it look like a personal vendetta. So they're under a lot of self-constraint to not get hysterical, to not go, what, You're, this is ridiculous. You know, I would do that, or I don't get interviewed, interview with the president. But uh, so, so, so they're 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 trying to keep it steady, and uh, and and maybe they also realize he had no answer to that. But no, I mean I think this is this was a great opportunity to say pre-existing conditions. Do you do you care about them? I mean, it was one of the questions I suggested in the, in the pointer piece. Uh, first of all, what he's talking about seems to be some variation of life insurance, maybe where you pay term life and when you're young and I mean, I, what, what my, my son what said, and I don't know yeah. if this is, yeah. is that on Fox News, they run ads for buying health, uh, life insurance for babies. Yeah, yeah, that's probably it. So that's right. Everything, you just find a Fox News, you know. It's an ad, it's not, it's an ad. Right, yeah, um, hold on one sec. So, uh, so, so the question then is, and what he's getting at is that if you say you cannot, if you say that, that insurance companies cannot discriminate against people with pre-existing conditions, that is in fact a very difficult, that's, that's a hard sell. Because what you're saying is basically, I get cancer, I've never bought, bought health insurance, I go to the health insurance company and I say I'd like some health insurance now. Um, and they have to pay, charge me the same amount as they would somebody who's totally healthy. That's an issue. That's a, a society has to decide, do you want that or not? Um, so I mean, I would like to ask Donald Trump a question. Should a you know a twenty year old woman who's healthy and go gets life get goes to buy health insurance should she pay more or less than a twenty year old who has cancer? It's incredibly brutal to say yeah we should they shouldn't insure the woman with cancer. But but, but, but even there you anyway, did I'm sorry, no, no 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 this yeah. is good this yeah. is good but even there mm. there you did there are two things going on right and 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 one is he said something that made no sense right right, right. so you could call and I'm not even advocating which of this you should do. But one thing to do would be to call him on it, right? And you, and you could, I think, do it in a nice way. You could just say, Mr. President, what kind of policy are you talking about? My guess would be that it's a time, it's a question of, he just spent five, you know, 90 seconds of my 40 minute window talking nonsense and I want to move him off this to something where maybe he says something that makes sense. I think I think that's part of it. So you you uh, you so want to get you want you don't want to spend your whole time just saying you don't know you what you're talking pick, about. You want to actually get at some pick policy. Your confrontations very carefully, and such that they avoid them completely. Which, but I mean, you certainly wouldn't want to argue with about every single thing he says. So you do want to pick your confrontations carefully, 
and then you have the t time to manage and you want to you wanted to make news i'm sorry yeah go ahead. i just wanted to historically look at presidential <laughs> i wonder historically if you look at presidential interviews has there ever been a case where reporters broke through whatever the screen happened to be right in debates occasionally there'll be moments of clarity, or Roger Mudd will get Ted Kennedy to Babylon, or Dukakis will be caught kind of saying something. There seem to be moments of genuine insight there. But I wonder if, if, if there's ever been an example of a reporter smart enough, clever enough, coming at something where the, the president actually shows a, a genuine side as opposed to sticking to the point. Not that I can remember. I mean, other than you know, maybe the Playboy interview where Jimmy Carter said he had lust in his heart. <laughs> Sorry, that's a really old one. Um, no, it's it's yeah, it's hard. Uh, presidents ever since uh, certainly since 9/11, but I think in some ways since you know really since Nixon, have learned how to pivot. I mean, part of being president these days is taking a question and turning it around and turning it to something you want to you want to say. And it has nothing to do with answering the question. Answering the question is almost, I mean, it's funny, Trump almost answers the questions more than Obama did, because Obama would take it and sort of answer some, another question, answer the question he wanted to ask. Uh, so rarely, I, the, the, the closest thing that comes to mind is um, President Bush had a sit-down interview with a young woman reporter from uh, Ireland, from RT, RT, I think it was. Um, and she was sort of like incredulous at, it, at his answers and would interrupt him and say, what do, you, what do you mean, what are you talking about? And he got pissed off. He got visibly angry. And it was a great video. But he didn't say anything. But do you think, I guess that's sort of the question is, is yeah. then if, if the president is playing a role, should the journalist also play a role? Right. A absolutely. Now, with Trump, that role would be asking a very, very simple question and digging down, it seems to me. Anything else is not going to work with Trump. The fact is that fundamentally, he, he lies and he has no idea what he's talking about. And so as a reporter, you say, how do I show this? And the answer is you ask a very serious, not a gotcha question, although it's a gotcha question for him, but a very serious, poli important policy question, and you drill down on it. And so for Trump, that would be revelatory because you would hit a, you would, you would see that he doesn't, can't go anywhere. Um, with people like Obama or Bush, um, I've always thought you're better off asking sort of circuitous questions, not about what they feel about something, but about when did they find out about X? Uh, you know, what were they, what did they do then? Um, actually asking about things that they have done. Because they, the presidents these days don't talk to you about how they make decisions or what they end up really doing. It's all very, very opaque. So, so, so yeah, for Obama, asking him about health care is not a great idea. Possibly asking him, you know, when exactly did you decide to do this? Or, uh, or, or did you, in fact, make a deal with pharma? Uh, so I would ask very fact-specific questions and very when did you know, what did you know and when did you know it questions with other presidents. But no, they're very good at, at avoiding them, even at sit-downs. Next is a student. We'll let Jeremy go. I don't mean to I, be. I would rather have a student. There's a student who wants to talk to you. There you go. 
So, so I'm going to start with your premise that uh, Trump is in over his head and incoherent, even though I think we need to be very careful about uh, underestimating someone who with seemingly no understanding of anything, managed to get himself elected president of the United States. I think that's a, something that we should figure out how that, how that happened. So here's my analogy. I'm in a calculus class, and I have someone in front of the room who is teaching me calculus, and time after time solves the problems incorrectly. And every minute is proving to the class over and over again that just not getting it, right? Uh, and I'm trying to figure out how I'm in the class. What, what am I supposed to do when I get called on and I'm talking to the, to the, to the teacher? It, it would seem that there would come a point at which the last thing in the world that I would do is to ask them another question about calculus, which I know they're going to get wrong, right? And in fact, I would have this tremendous psychological urge, as that reporter did in that New York Times interview, to come up with something that I can ask where maybe I'll ask them an algebra question because maybe they can do that, right? Uh, and so can you at least tell me that you want people to have health care so everybody can feel reassured? <laughs> that, and, 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 you know, I actually think that that's what's going on there. In other words, I, I think that this is not um, people, people who normally be cowed by the President of the United States. This President has no power of that kind, right? In other words, he has tremendous, he's a bully. He's large. He insults people, but he has no stature. In other words, nobody nobody looks at him and goes, "Wow, I'm in the president." Unlike Obama, where you go, "Oh my God!" Just like to be in the room with Obama would be a thrill, right? But being in the room with Donald Trump is like a drag, right? It's this lurking presence of dumbness, right? So, so you, so, so I think he actually succeeds in creating in in, in the intelligentsia this sort of, we just we gotta bail this guy out because. He doesn't really, he can't speak our language, but he does speak another language, which is not truth-related, that brings him his crowds. Uh, and y your reaction, which, is, which was um, that uh, the, um, the reporters should be ashamed of themselves for not understanding that truth is the real currency, because that's what reporters do. That's great. It's almost utopian. But in our mm -hmm. current culture, people react to winning. And he's winning, and they don't know why, and they don't know how, right. but he just keeps up. And so they're just trying as best, it, it, you know, you might go to the headmaster of the school and say, do you realize that our calculus teacher doesn't know anything about calculus? Yeah. And then the headmaster says, yes, I realize that, but he's the calculus teacher, live with it. And after a while, you're going to stop going to the headmaster because you know nothing's going to change. So now the question is, what can you make out of this horrible situation that you're in? And I think that the reporters at the New York Times, that's what they're trying to do. They're trying, this is who we got. What's the best we can make out of it? And demonstrating well, I don't, I don't again... They're trying to make him look good. That's, yeah, yeah. But, but I think they are treating him like a president and uh, trying to find ways for him to make news and trying to yeah. find ways for him to say things that, will, that are quotable, that will make sense. I think there's that. Yeah. Um, and so... Uh, and 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 give, and not not creating confrontation that someone could look at and say you are just being confrontational. Right. Um, it's pretty depressing. All right, students. Um, Hold on. Here's the mic. Get into the mic. Yeah. Um, so if journalists do start uh, taking your advice and asking 
questions are more simple and hard-hitting and dig deeper, and they write articles based off of those answers, how do you make sure that those articles don't get lost in all of the, don't blend <laughs> in with all the negative articles that are already out there about Trump? Because I feel like you wrote this point in our article um, because you knew that he would get backed into a corner by these questions, and so we already kind of predict his answers. Um, so how do you, I guess, how do you make audiences care that he's not able to answer the questions? That's a great question. Uh, I do not have an answer. <laughs> no, I mean, seriously, you've, you've put your finger on a couple different problems. One is that the reason why reporters don't write about policy is because people don't read, don't seem to be interested in, you know, that those aren't the stories that are suddenly sent around virally these days, for instance. It's all about process, and so all, they're all the reporters are only talking about process these days and winning. Um, uh, so uh, it, it wouldn't necessarily get uh, huge traffic to write that article, but it would be a service at least. Um, and the other thing, though, is you know the news cycle is moving so fast, and there's so much going on. You know, any number of things that are happening on a daily basis would be six-week-long stories in any other political climate I've ever seen before, and it's incredibly hard. And so, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, some of the stuff I write, I'm working for, I'm writing on occasion for a group called the American Constitution Society. I'm writing about these sort of legal issues that are really, really important. But who the hell is gonna, you know, this, who's the, you're being this, you know, wiretaps, <laughs> prosecutors. Blowing up North Korea, uh, you know, I mean, it's 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 a, such a train wreck. It's hard to have anybody read about anything but the train wreck. Um, so that's hard. That said, you know, I write these pieces because I think they have value in the short run and in the long run. I think that an article basically saying. Donald Trump does not understand healthcare. And here are six, you know, here, here we asked him six questions, and he couldn't answer a single one of those with any understanding of the situation. I think that has, that has value. Um, would it be, right, I, and I think over time it might, it might do well, you know, and it might, and it might change this conversation. So, uh, but that's, I think, a really good, as good an explanation as any of why they ask the kind of questions they do, because they're not looking for that story. They're looking for a conflict story. But thank you for that question. Um, I have more of a comment, not really a question, but I was hoping you could comment on it as well. Please. Um, one of the additional problems I see is that I can remember one time when a reporter challenged Trump, like went deeper with something, and that was, and I wish I remembered who it was, but it was uh, one of the networks, I think it was CBS, was in the Oval Office asking him about the wiretapping allegations that Obama had wiretapped Trump Tower. And he kept saying, there's no proof, there's no proof, and, and asking Mr. President, where's the proof? And, <clears throat> excuse me, Trump basically kicked him out. So. The one time I remember where someone tried to dig deeper, granted it's not policy, but the one time where someone tried to dig deeper, they got shut off completely. Yeah. So. Yeah. And, and, you know, ever press secretaries are threatened not to call on people if they ask rude questions or things like that. Yeah. Uh, 
That's what you put. I should point out on this whole wiretapping, by the way, I mean, the, inter the, the, the news that we CNN reported yesterday, which may or not be true, but let's assume for the sake of argument that it is. So Manafort was actually being surveilled in his conversations with Trump during the campaign. He was right. So he predicted it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, perfect. Uh, additional question to this question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, so you spoke about uh, being aware of the emotional quotient of the person you are interviewing, and in this That's case, sorry. Uh, so you spoke about uh, being aware of the emotional quotient of the person you are interviewing, and in this case, uh, Trump, yeah. and accordingly, you know, assess the questions that you are going to ask. And for Trump, you said that you should ask him simple questions, then dig deeper, like you know, press forward. So my question in addition to him was, that, like the example of the reporter, is was the limitation of pressing Trump? Because anyways, he's making wild allegations, uh, which is kind of uh, putting international relations on fire, like attacking North Korea and all. So don't you think that uh, we should press further, but if we press too much, he'd be like a dog in a corner, and he might come out lashing, which might be harmful for the global uh, you know, the community as a whole? So, <laughs> no, no, so the question was, uh, how much should you, did I go further? Point. I would not want to press him on North Korea. Yeah, yeah. That's absolutely right. Like, I really wouldn't. Um, I'd like to press him on health care and on tax reform. Uh, so what's the limitation? Like, but how I mean do the, you know how much to yeah. press further or not? How do you understand right, that? But see, and that, so, but, so what I would do, if I really did have this chance, is I wouldn't just repeat the same question over and over again, although that, that, has its, that can work sometimes. I mean, uh, so I'm not saying it's a bad idea generally. He's asked the same question over again, pointing out, you haven't answered the question, let me ask you it. But, but I would just sort of politely go deeper. Um, again, not foreign affairs, because yeah, you don't want him to go and say, yeah, come to think of it, I really should blow them up. You know? uh, but, but other things, just politely sort of, okay, so what, and be prepared, and be prepared. I mean, a lot of these interviews, the reason why Probably the best reason why Maggie Haberman asked that question was because it was the next one in her notebook. You know, I mean, they just, they, they're not really listening, they're not going for opportunities. They're just, I know, I know. I'm making excuses for Maggie Haberman. Um, I mean, Maggie is, you know, her reputation is that she's, she'll write whatever any source tells her. That's her reputation, and she's been doing a very good job of that. So she's not like the gold standard. Um, yeah, so. Um, so one thing that I observed uh, looking at the interviews, uh, the, you know, the transcripts of the interviews, uh, was that a lot of the time he will just completely derail the conversation. Um, so right. like, what are ways that you can, or what are techniques to sort of keep him uh, on topic, uh, you know, again, without like attacking him and saying like, you didn't answer the question. Um, what are, what are yeah. ways to sort of guide him maybe that you can, you can actually get him to speak about what you want him to speak about? Yeah, no, that's a good question. I think, I think you use you know, a little bit of psychology, a little bit of management. You basically say back, well, Mr. President, I asked you this question, and you instead went off, to, you told us about the election, which happened six months ago, and I'd really like to get back to that actual question, you know, and, uh, I mean, I, but it, yeah, then he gets derailed in some other way. I mean, he is so uncontrollable. I can't predict success for any particular tactic. Um, but I can say is that as a reporter going in, if you're not going in with the, with the goal, the intention, and the preparation to at least tell the real story of Donald Trump, you're just aiding and abetting. 
That's all. But no, I don't, I don't, there's no silver bullet. And there, I don't think there, I don't think there is, has been one for a long time as in the American political system because politicians have gotten so good at not answering <laughs> questions. There's no such thing as a bad question. Anybody else? Come on, guys. Okay, we got one over here. Ah. Um, could a potential solution be just refuse to cover him or just refuse to interview him? <laughs> just, yeah, well, just Huffington Post, as you recall, sort of tried that during the campaign. They, uh, they, they decided he was an entertainment figure, not a political figure, and they would no longer cover him as a political figure. That didn't work. Um, you, uh, I think that that's a tempting answer, except for the President of the United States. You know, you just can't ignore him. It's too big a deal. Um, you can, uh, you know, you can, you can choose, you can think about your coverage and think, am I covering this too much? Um, am I, uh, have we already written enough articles about this one thing? Um, talk about giving him, you know, trying to give him, uh, build him up. I mean, the, a couple of days ago, the New York Times had a front page story about how he's actually governing as an independent now because he talked to Democrats for one and a half days about possibly making a deal uh, on, on, uh, on Dreamers, um, which hasn't happened and probably won't. And, uh, but, you know, so you can, you can not try to draw ridiculous conclusions based on limited amounts of data. Um, I, I would have ignored him a lot more during the campaign than the press did at the time. Uh, instead of, the guy played us like crazy. The, he's like, he is a reality TV star. That is what he is. He knows how to make compelling reality television. And the networks just let him go on and on and on. And, and there was no excuse for that. I guess the, the intent of my question was yeah. to, what, where I was getting at is, Please. can we come up with a way to deny him the adulation he craves via, via the media? I don't think that's the role of the media. Uh, I think the media has a lot of roles, but that you know that's not one. Um, he, uh, I, I think, I think we ought to just sort of write about the fact that he's surrounded by adulation and praise, even though it's crazy. Um, I mean, how, I don't know. You tell me. Tell me more about what you. What well, doing. I think we can. I think the press has, um, it it has the ability to at least guide public figures' behavior, and um, the and what the, and their agenda. So. We have, we do have the power to do that in some cases. Is there any ways? Is there any way in which we could uh, use that? Well, I certainly think. I mean, if 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 news organizations really took it upon themselves, they can focus on certain things. They can, in fact, say, "Look, we need to write about climate change every day, forever." They should have done that. Five years ago, they should be doing it right now. There should be an article about climate change and the effects of it every single day on the front page of the New York Times. Um, and if they did that, 
over time, I do think they would affect the conversation. Um, but uh, but they, they work in this market where a lot of the attention goes to the, the, the day in, day out stuff that gets too much attention. I don't know. I don't, I don't think we have that much power. I think, um, right, yeah, I don't know. Hi. Hi. Um, do you think journalists should keep covering his Twitter tweets? Like, keep posting them on yeah. their news organization, like, broadcast? Yeah, again, again, I mean, I'd love to ignore it, but he can't. He's the president of the United States. But do you think, like, he's announcing his policy mm -hmm. through Twitter? And, like, do you think we should trust Twitter instead of, like... It's become the single greatest look into his brain. I mean, it's, it's really pure Trump. I mean, everything else you hear... Uh, you know, from the White House, it, we don't know what the heck. There is no White House, right? I mean, who, there's like factions within factions, and they don't know what the hell's on his mind. The only time you know what's on his mind is when he tweets it. So, you um, so you're saying, so you're saying we should trust his Twitter? Well, not trust the Twitter, but not ignore the Twitter. I mean, we can trust that Donald Trump tweeted that. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, the obvious case that comes to mind is when he announced on Twitter that he was banning transgender folks from, from uh, serving in the military. Uh, that was an enormous piece of news. It was also not true that he couldn't do it and he couldn't do it, at, you know, he couldn't, he couldn't do it quickly and he, it's not happening as fast as he, you know, but, but, but that's huge news and he makes news a lot and the way he attacks the press is, is newsworthy. Um, but again, yeah, and the greatest gear things, he's playing us again. You're exactly right. I mean, he tweets something and that's what everybody's talking about. And whatever they were talking about a minute ago, whatever the press may have been trying to get some attention focused on, because it's important, vanished, gone. Yeah, so he, that, there are a lot of things that he does that I think we can fight back against. That one, I don't, I don't think we can, not in this day and age. Um, this is something we discussed in a previous class, but I wanted to know what you thought about Peter Thiel's comment that the media takes him literally instead of seriously, yeah. unlike his followers who take him seriously instead of literally. I mean, like, we talked about his Twitter, how, you know, it's essential to see what's going on in his brain mm -hmm. and how we're dissecting these interviews. So, like, I mean, what do you think about... I think it's, that's, that's, I think it's very perceptive. Um, he, he operates in a world where what he says isn't always true and it doesn't matter and maybe he predicts something or whatever but the, the, the message he's sending is I want to go back to an America where you know men were men and cows were cows and uh, you know and I'm strong you can be safe with me I'm a winner uh, that's basically everything he's saying, uh, and everything else is just sort of lost, you know, icing on the cake. And so his his message is coming through loud and clear to his supporters. Um, you know, it's it's a message of misogynistic white supremacy and anti-intellectualism. Um, but yeah, we get but we can't ignore every time he says something literally. 
I do think we should put in more context, though. I think that's, I think that's right. I think just like his supporters hear it in the context, we, sh as reporters, should put it in context. I mean, I, you know, I, I used to joke, okay, this is going to go way over your heads because it's, you weren't even born. Um, but, but that Ronald Reagan should be referred to on second reference as an unindicted, co unindicted co-conspirator in the Iran-Contra uh, investigation. There are some things that are so important that you need to not forget them. And the fact that, you know, Ronald Reagan basically you know, allowed a hugely unconstitutionally illegal operation to operate outside of it. Anyway, the point is that, that, yes, on second reference, we should say Trump, who, you know, who often, who shouldn't be taken literally, basically. Yeah. You know, I mean, we could almost say that. Who, who, whose statements are often, you know, backpedaled or don't actually materialize or not based on truth or, um, but, I don't know, does that answer your question at all? Yeah, kind of, yeah. Well, you tell me, what do you think? Um, yeah, I'm not sure he's really, oh. I'm not sure he's a unique person um, in That's today's. That's terrifying. <laughs> Go on. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not really sure he has no experience in this field, so when you are interviewing him, especially about policy and stuff, can you expect him to give you a straight answer? Can you expect him to give you a factual answer? Um, you know, it's confusing, I guess. Yeah. No, I mean, look, I mean, I thought long and hard about these questions that I suggested in, in the pointer piece. And, I, and I, I think they're reasonable questions. And I think, my, you know, they're not like sort of questions where somebody say, oh, you're just trying to catch him. Except for maybe the, you know, what's the price of milk or something. Um, the, the, I, you know, I think, I think that's important is to, is to, uh, is when he doesn't answer the question, you explain why it was reasonable for him to answer the question. I don't know how much good that does. Yeah. Okay, great. And then. Um, as a journalist, how do you suggest that they take on the fake news phenomenon. So it seems to have grown into this, you know, you can claim that anything you don't want to read or you don't agree with is fake news. How do you, as a journalist, how do you approach that? How do you try and fight back against that? Uh, well, I mean, first of all, you, you, you don't give in. You don't uh, stop doing what it is you're doing. Um, and then, uh, you know, in my case, I'm actually working with some folks in the Nonprofit area to come up with figure out ways that you can uh, ameliorate that to some extent. I mean, the thing I'm looking at right now is this, is an issue of, of sort of annotating layer annotation layers, so that you come onto a story and if people you trust have said this story is that's not true, that would sort of show up on an, on a layer above the story, um, that sort of thing. I mean, there's a lot of different mechanical things we're looking at, um, but fundamentally, you don't you, yeah you don't give up. Um, you just keep doing what you can. Uh, I don't know. So I want to go back to Jonathan's question about was there an example of an interview that actually caught someone? Uh, and I think we have one with Trump, although I don't actually agree with the way that it's been interpreted. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is the Lester Holt interview. Mm -hmm. So it, it is routinely stated on the, in the press now that in that interview, Lester Holt got Trump to agree that he fired Comey because of the Russia investigation. I don't actually think that he did admit that, but that's a, that's a different issue. 
So maybe we should look at that interview as an example of something about the way, the way he did it. And I, re I really liked what you said about uh, rather than asking him what does he believe or what does he think, ask him, what did you do? Uh, and one of the reasons why I say that, to go back to your thing about him not being unique, I don't think he's unique at all. I think he's an abuser. I think he's an abusive personality. Uh, and I think it's quite common in, in people with abusive personalities that, you know, one day uh, they'll come in and the dinner won't be ready and they'll go crazy. Uh, and the next day they'll come in and dinner is ready and it's, why didn't you ask me what I wanted? And, and back and forth and there's no consistency because it puts the other person in this very dependent position because it's no longer, there's no coherence as a way of holding someone accountable. Reason is a technique for holding people with power accountable and Trump just rejects that as a way of holding himself accountable. So interviewing him and asking him what he thinks and whatever, it, it, maybe that the interview itself as a format can't work other than get him on the record, I did this, I did this, I did this. So that's just another suggestion. What, let me just add one thing. Just the, the, for, when you do talk to journalists who cover Washington going forward, um, ask them about what pressures they feel under. A ask them, you know, what do they, what you know, do they feel there, are there things that they know that if they, if they did they would get in trouble? Or people often talk about, you know, how they, like the, their people or journalists are censored, uh, you know, by the White House. That never happens. It's all self-censorship. So, so how do they decide what's too aggressive or what's too much of a waste of time? How do they measure the value of the topics? What, what you know, how much do they think about their editor's reaction? versus the reader's reaction. This, these, the, the, these are questions that they may not answer honestly. So think, ask them maybe if they have regrets about not having asked a certain question of somebody in the past. And if they do, then ask them, why didn't they? You know, again, same interview technique. Basically, instead of saying, how do you feel about this? Say, what did you do? Why did you do it? Um, because you'd be doing me a huge service. Because I, I, you know, this first came up when I was, I was um, writing this column about George W. Bush. And I started off, and it was just sort of, be a, sort of be a collection of White House news. The idea was for the Washington Post to have a place where you collect all the White House news. And it quickly became obvious to me that there was a story going on that was not was being reported in little pieces here and there, but not coherently, that Bush was completely over his head and, and really uh, a terrible, terrible president in a lot of ways, and he lied about a lot of stuff. He didn't lie the way Trump lies, like, because he, he, lies, he lied more strategically. He lied because Cheney told him to lie about stuff. Um, so, so I started telling this story, and people were like, why are you, how are you so smart that you tell this story and other people don't? And I'm like, dude, that is not it. Um, the people who are covering the White House, the people who you're going to be interviewing, are incredibly smart. They are, they are the tops in their field. They are uh, terrific people. If you talk to them after a couple drinks, they would tell you more things about these presidents than I could possibly tell you because they, they've seen it, they've ingested it. But then what they spit out is this crap. Um, and, uh, and, it's, and, and so why was I different? Well, there were two things that were different about me. One is. I've never been properly socialized. Um, but, <laughs> but the other is, I was working from home. 
I was a contractor writing about the White House from home. I wasn't part of the newsroom culture. I wasn't part of the need access culture. I was in this uniquely privileged position, and I completely felt sympathy for the White House reporters who I mocked, because I realized they were under incredible pressures that I was not. They were under the pressures of dealing with their editors, dealing with the newsroom, dealing with the management. They were under the pressures of dealing every day with the people in the White House, of trying to, of feeling under pressure to get scoops, and they need access, because if you don't get access, you don't get the scoops. There's a lot of stuff going on there. Um, and, uh, and so you guys are in a unique position to ask them about that in ways that hopefully aren't, you know, that will hopefully get them to acknowledge some of this stuff. A little bit on the psychology of it, right, which you just began to touch on and I think is really good, both in terms of this interview and interview tactics and then also in terms of what it means to cover the White House generally or the administration generally or, or Trump in particular. And, and I'm going to start following up a little bit on um, Jeremy's question and the, the Lester Hall interview that made the news mm -hmm. about I actually fired Comey because of the Russia thing. Um, the news that came out of the Times interview that mm -hmm. we looked at was the news that he, he, he was mad at Sessions. This was a, I, either the first time or maybe a follow-up. It wasn't, even the, first time, wasn't yeah. even the first time. Okay, so he's mad at Sessions. He talks a lot about, I was really unhappy that Sessions didn't recuse himself. He should have recused himself. How could he do this to me? Yeah. Um, but the Times never asked him, why did you think Sessions should recuse himself? Huh? Should not recuse himself. I mean, wh why was it, I mean, that, that seems to me like the most obvious mm -hmm. question, and, and not, I mean, you wanted news, the news should not just be, I'm really ticked off at Sessions, but the news should be, why did he have this expectation that the Attorney General would do his bidding? Right? I mean, you didn't have to ask it like that, right? I mean, this seemed to me a perfect opportunity just to, because he keeps talking about it for you to do just the follow-up, which, which would be that. And it never happened. Yeah, and so getting back to the psychology of, I mean, and I'm going to go back to Maggie Haberman, my first example, too, which is, I know as a, as a journalist, when I, I mean, I do an interview, you want to understand, right? And I understand that part of the problem here is it's impossible to understand. I gave up on the Wall Street Journal interview. I tried twice, and I just was like, I have no idea what's happening here. I can't do it. I just can't do it, even though I assigned my students to do it. I can't do it. <laughs> and I feel very guilty about it, and I'm confessing this to you. But there is a some point <laughs> at which the incoherence is so out of control, mm -hmm. you don't know what to do. But they're also, you know, I mean, the Haberman thing, the first thing with the 20, came at the very beginning. Bef and there wasn't that much, I mean, that, the Wall Street Journal interview, I think, was worse in that respect, and just kind of the verbiage and the, um, but um, why isn't there like this, you're saying something to me, I want to understand it more, and therefore, yeah. I'm going to ask the next question, and this is not gotcha, I mean, I, I, I really, I really don't, think of it that way. But you I think th of it I as just understanding. And, and when, you do, when you do interviews with normal people, or witnesses, or people, in, that's exactly what you're trying to do, is just, well, what, it, what happened? How did you find out what happened? You know, but, but when you do an interview with the president, it's very different. And I do think, I think their, their, their goal is to make news and to not waste time. Okay, you know, they spent so, so much time talking about the Bastille Day here. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. No, I get that. Um, I don't. So think, the, I, I didn't get a sense here. And I, and I do think that the, that the the obvious questions often do go unasked for that reason. Um, I uh, I remember once I was when I was working at the Orange County Register, uh, the the budget went too long. Uh, went past even bu the budget approval process went past even the reasonable date. So the the, the, Sac the Sacramento bureau chief who was scheduled his vacation long after there was any possibility the budget would still be unresolved, had to go anyone on vacation. So I came up, and I was part of the Sacramento Press Corps, which is actually a lot like the Washington Press Corps. Very insular, very detailed, very process-oriented, very focused on stuff. And they were, and every day, Governor Pete Wilson and, and a, a State House guy, Willie Brown, would give, a, would give dueling press conferences. And they'd be asking these really r incredibly detailed questions, both to show how smart they were. That's another thing, by the way. Another reason why, why reporters will ask questions is to look smart, uh, when I think reporters should be, feel free to look dumb. God knows I have. Um, so, uh, and so they'd be asking all these detailed questions. Every day I would ask the same question. What's taking so long? <laughs> and I looked like an idiot, right? And all the people in the press corps were like, what, why are you asking such a stupid question? That's the only question that got ever got a reasonable answer and got and made news the next morning. So yeah, asking a common sense question, it, you forget it in the throes of, it's not so much gotcha, but it is looking for news, looking for a nugget. And, and with Trump, yeah, I mean, assuming that, recognizing he's not gonna answer your damn questions anyway. I have another um, psychology question about this, and then, and then I do think, I, I, I mean, I think it'd be great to even, you know, talk a, about interviewing more generally. The Ivanka thing. Um, in both interviews, <laughs> yeah, she shows up. She shows she? up. Yeah. So, if you're the journalist, do you just you stop? You just let her do her little thing? You ignore her? I mean, well, I mean that was Gerald so. Baker, you kissy kissy. Or yeah. you kissy kissy. Um, <laughs> I, I think I mean, that's that a perfect example. I mean, it is so bizarre that the obvious thing is saying, excuse me, but what in God's name is she doing here? But it's just part of that, that actually, I mean, I would just let it go. This is me because it's like such, it's part of the White House. She's got an official position there. I mean, but yeah, I can see why you'd be annoyed by that. But, but you. It's crazy. Yeah. It's I, crazy. Well, and it, but I guess in here, this goes back to the psychology. I mean, it, it's crazy, but I don't, I don't think it's crazy, actually. I, thi <laughs> I, think, I think there was a reason for that. I'm not sure I understand the reason for that. Why she kept on yeah. showing up? Well, I think she was worried, yeah. She was worried? Or yeah. she was, you don't be too mean to him because he's my daddy. Right, right. That's an interesting question. But yeah, I mean, think about this. Like, I, I, it's an interesting idea. Trying to think about the psychology of this. How do you... And, and it's so funny, the, the American Psychiatric Association used to have a rule that licensed psychiatrists were not allowed to diagnose people, even in public policy, you know, public life, who they hadn't actually treated. You know. and, and they gave it up with Trump because they realized all these psychiatrists were like basically pointing out that he's borderline psychotic. Um, you know, he's got narcissistic personality disorder, he's got you know, attention span issues, he's got you know, all, all these. It'd be interesting to talk to them and say, how do you get a person with those disorders to actually open up? And uh, that would be interesting. Yeah, I mean, when we interview people, I mean, there are two things. I mean, one is mm -hmm. we won't know as much about their psychology. We, we're going to try and find out something about their background, but obviously mm -hmm. we're not in any way going to know as much as we all 
know about um, Trump. Um, on the other hand, I assume we're dealing with people who will be easier to interview, right? I mean, so I mean, I, I have never interviewed anyone that came close to being as difficult as this guy was to interview. I mean, I think just as experienced mm -hmm. journalists, we can say that, that this is off the charts in terms of difficulty, I would think. Or maybe you, maybe yeah, you no, might no, have been no, more. No, I, I agree. And I, but I think going back to one of the things you were saying is that, that you, you have to put it in context. So, I mean, every line in that interview needed to be explained, needed to be contextualized. This is not an answer to the question. This makes no sense. What he's saying here is completely unintelligible. This is, the, look, he's talking about the crowd. Remember, we asked him about something else. I mean, that would have been a really valuable exercise and really sort of blistering annotation. I, I think Talking um, Points Memo actually did that. With, they did, they did. Yeah. Actually, Josh Marshall did that with little circles yeah, and stuff. He did a little yeah. bit of that. But, yeah. I, but this idea yeah. of, of yeah. doing it kind of with everything is really interesting. I mean, well, we talk uh, right, I mean, or not the, everything. The, the challenge is making it interesting enough that you want to click on it. Yeah, but yeah. yeah. So, um. so I have one more question about Trump interview, and then, then we and and I'll see if anybody else does too, and then we can maybe move on to the more general interviewing question. And this was something that I thought about a lot during the campaign, and I think this these interviews, particularly the time one, really bring it <coughs> to the forefront, which is he has a different understanding of truth claims than m most people do, right? I mean, so the idea of evidence proof is very different. I thought the Sweden thing was really, really telling. He actually believed that he had somehow recognized this truth. Right. About the Swedish. About the Swedish yeah. thing, even though what he said was completely wrong. So, so and he now goes back and he goes, yeah, I was right about that. I think that's, I think that's, that's from his perspective, right, that honest. He, yes, no, I, no, I, I, no, I, 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 I agree. I mean, yeah. I agree. I think that's yeah. one of the mm -hmm. interesting phenomenons mm -hmm. is that he, I mean, he also says in that interview, I'm instinctual, right? I right. Do, and is there, I mean, is there a way to, to, to get at that through questioning him or is that, or should we write more about his his notions of what truth is? Yeah, no, we is? should absolutely be writing but about that and putting it in context. No, I don't. I don't know that. I mean, I think if you if you went a little deeper, you would get more of that. So there was basically instead of, you know, when he says something crazy, you go, okay, let's move on. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you go, well, explain that to me. Yeah. You know, uh, I don't get that. Uh, that would that would help. Yeah. Not really. No, I mean the sit down interviews are very rare. They are almost always with Fox News or or CNBC or that sort of thing. You know, he has to choose who he talks to, right? Like, oh yeah, okay. yeah. Um, he also is giving very few press conferences, even though, as I said, the the power dynamic there is very different. The sit down is is a, is a very special thing. But uh, anybody have any other questions about or comments or, or just comments you know tell me well, I'm full of it for some about something? I'd about be very yeah you okay. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> oh, okay. oh, shoot, I thought you were going to tell me I was full of it. Huh? Um, uh, just about, uh, you were talking earlier about trying to dig deep, and I'm wondering uh, how you would make a value judgment about when to kind of, when's the right time to leave and when's the time to just keep pushing it until you get something, because sometimes you can't. In interviewing, sometimes there's just nothing yeah. there, but I think, you know, if you have 40 minutes and 
instead of trying to cover 12, 15 different policy issues, you really just focus on two or three. Do you think you're going to get a better interview overall? I, th I think you need to game it ahead of time and decide what it is you want to really focus on. Um, and uh, and you know, that Time Magazine interview, remember, that was actually a focused interview on his credibility. One of the most amazing things you'll ever read. Um, the, uh, I, I think that a lot of, another one of the problems is that, you know, like I was saying, that it's possible that that was just the next question on Maggie's list, is that they get a lot of, there's too many editors, you know, in the world and any given news organization, too many editors. Uh, and, um, you know, Edna Buchanan's three rules of journalism. Edna Buchanan was this great crime reporter at the Miami Herald, just absolutely fabulous, wrote blisteringly beautiful prose. And her three rules were never trust an editor, and never trust an editor, and never trust an editor. Those were her three rules of journalism. <laughs> oh, I've been an editor half my career. I agree with it completely. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, don't go in with a million questions. Uh, at the press conferences, they're like, I have four questions, right? You know, no, ask one question and follow up. Of course, you can't at the press conference, which is why they do four questions. Yeah. But yeah, so, so agree ahead of time with follow up. And yeah, I think it's, a, it's absolutely reasonable to say, look, this is one thing we're not going to go into in some depth, but this one is worth it. Let's talk about it. Do you it. think then limiting what questions you walk into with might help overall? Oh, yeah, hugely. No, and right, and that's the, both of these interviews were sort of wide ranging interviews, right? Right. Wide, Wide, shallow. shallow. Yeah. yeah. Appreciate it. Oh, please, you. Right now, here, 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 here. Oh, sorry. Hi. Um, so my question is, and it's not meant to sound like I don't think it's a worthy thing to pursue, it's a worthy thing to do, because I totally do, but if you got an interview where you could show that Trump knows nothing about healthcare, what impact do you think that would have? And who's your audience for that? No, that's a great question too. Um, I think that uh, as a journalist, if I look at the Trump White House and Trump presidency, uh, I think one of the things that the public doesn't seem to understand about him is how little he understands about anything. And so I would say that's an important story to get out to the public and just to, in general to sort of make it, it, it to add it into the public conversation. Um, I, uh, right, another reason why you wouldn't write a story is, well, the, hate, you know, the haters will hate it, and the Fox News will make fun of us for running the story, and all the Trump loyalists will pick at the New York Times and stuff like that. Uh, but, but it's an important story. It's important to, I mean, and that's the thing. You go in and you go, what's the important story here? What's the, what's the thing that we really need to explain to our readers to be doing a job of covering the White House that we can look ourselves in the mirror and be proud of in the morning? that we've explained the stuff that we actually know. I mean, uh, Matt Taibbi tells this great story about how he grew up, he's a Rolling Stone uh, political journalist, probably one of the best political journalists in America right now. Anyway, so he grew up with a bunch of reporters. His dad was a reporter. And he said they told the most amazing stories uh, at the bar at night around, you know, about, about stuff they'd covered. And they wrote what they wrote was dry, brittle, uninteresting. Um, so, so uh, these reporters, they know, they know what the stories really are, but they're just going in and saying, let's just get some news. They're not, they're not gaming it out the way they should. And so what, it, what would an external extrinsic value be? Hard to say, but it's, you know, it's the right thing to do. Because I guess my, my point is that yeah. I think or I feel that most of the left, like they understand that 
Trump doesn't really know what he's doing. That we have that well, we have that okay. assumption, but we don't have the proof, which I think an article like that would potentially help to build the argument against that. My point is more. I, guess I don't know. That point is as I mean. I think I think you know a lot of Americans are now recognize that he is uh, that he lies, that he's bombastic, that he's irrational, that he's un, you know, But I don't know that they understand just how profoundly he doesn't understand what's going on. So I do think that's still an important message. I guess, like, yeah, the largest impact I could see would be to get his supporters to see that. Well, and do you think that an article like that would have that? Well, OK, again, right. Again, these are interesting questions, which, uh, if you, if, and especially if you're trying to actually change, you know, move the needle and stuff, those are very complicated questions. I don't think that's what a journalist should be doing. I mean, a journalist should be saying, I need to tell you what you need to know. Um, but that said, yeah, I mean, there's, there's the Trump loyalists, and you probably will never touch them. But there's still a bunch of people who aren't Trump loyalists who voted for this guy and who still, you know, seem to think he may not be a, a disaster. And you need to explain it to them. And you need to say, look, if this is the issue you care about, let's say you care about jobs. Here's what President Trump thinks about jobs. Tax cut, it'll help. Okay, how, why, when, what, what sectors will grow, how, where will the jobs be? You know, he doesn't know. So you then say, he doesn't actually have an answer to your concern. That, maybe that's somewhat relevant. I don't know. No, but I mean, these are all great questions. Thank you. And yeah. as um, well they should be from journalism students, <laughs> by the way. Um, now I have to remember what I was going to say. Uh, it's in political science, yes. Oh, right. Um, so I agree with every, everything you're saying. I'll preface <laughs> this with that. But from what I'm understanding is basically we're screwed. Oh, yeah, there's definitely. No, there's That's no absolutely right, my message, there's no, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's no right way to do this, and no one, if there is, no one's figured it out, and it seems unlikely anyone's going to figure it out anytime soon. Is perhaps a better angle talking to other people in the administration that might be a little more of a normal interview, maybe sessions, I mean, to the extent that they know what's going on? Uh, right, well, I, no, because they don't know what's going on. Because right, the, exactly. the executive branch is controlled by a, somebody who know, is a complete loose cannon. And so I don't think there's any point in sitting around talking to Rex Tillerson or Gary Cohn or whatever. Or you, know, you talk to the OMB guy, he gives an interview, says something, and then Trump the next morning says, no, that's not the case. But he is being enabled by the entire Republican Party leadership. He's being enabled by, the, by you know, Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan. And every single congressman in America who is a Republican who is supporting him ought to be questioned. Why, do you believe him? Do you think he's telling the truth? Do you think he's right about this? Do you think he understands what's going on? Those people you should be getting on the record saying, oh, I think he's brilliant. And it, because a few years from now, two, five, certainly 20, history will be unkind uh, to this. It'll be seen as an absolutely bizarre aberration in, in America's not always glorious history, but even this one's even more bizarre. How could this man have become president? How could he be treated as a, you know, how could, how could he get the support, of majority support of both houses of Congress? That's a great question. That's a great subject for interviews. The members of Congress, how do you find it okay to support this? What, and go down the list of issues, of things, you know, what about his credibility? What about, what about his, you know, his position on white nationalism? I mean, that, that, that actually did, that was one of the few cases where people did go to the members of Congress and say, do you support, do you think he's, you know, 
he's been too easy on white supremacists. Some people said, yeah, he's been too easy on white supremacists. So, so no, I don't think, so typically, yes, typically in a normal presidency, you would talk to people who have talked to the president, you would talk to people who work for the president, you would talk to people in the cabinet agencies, you would talk to low-level people to find out what's going on, you would talk to people who aren't, you know, who aren't supposed to, who aren't, who aren't spinners, but who are actually doing stuff. Yeah, you would do all that. But this one, I don't, I don't see the point. Okay, yes, yes. I would still want to talk to people at EPA about how Pruitt is, is, is affecting the EPA. I mean, look at, you know, look at Houston. We, there's no, EPA is completely AWOL on, on testing pollution uh, in the water and in the, what's going on there. So yeah, you would still talk to them about ways the government is failing. You're not gonna to talk to them to find out insights into Trump. That's all I'm saying. Okay. Yes, there's still plenty of stories to do about government and how it's being screwed up. And some of it, you know, these are old age olds. A lot of it's still going on just the way it's always been screwed up. So it's not just Trump. Yeah. Um, let me take the next one. Um, so, so as you know, we're going to be talking to um, different so journalists. Who are we talking to? So next week we're talking to Greg Meyer, and then the weekend after, and we're, and we're trying to do not just the White House press corps. So um, people are doing issues, you know, different mm -hmm. issues too. So yeah, well, I hope you get um, some congressional reporters asking them, you know. We have one person coming from Politico <laughs> um, on, co on Congress. Yeah. Um, we're having uh, Brendan Bordelon come from the National Journal to talk about uh, tech and cybersecurity. Um, we're having Ethan Bronner come from mm -hmm. Bloomberg News. We're having Julie Pace come from AP. Mm -hmm. um, we're having Ron Campius come from the JTA. I'm make sure I have remember everybody. Who's coming from Politico? Um, one of the younger reporters, Sung Kim. Kim. Yeah. Um, I, I giggle about Politico, but actually the funny thing is it's okay. not as bad as it used to be. Sung Min Kim, sorry. Go it ahead. used to be just the absolute sort of sports pages of Washington in the worst possible ways. Um, since Harris and Vanda, well, who is it? I guess Vanda High and Allen left to go form this Axios thing. Right. It, Politico has actually gotten better. Um, so it's not all bad. And uh -huh. there's some fine, very great people who work there. And, and we're having Ron Federucci come I'd from, and I'm not sure I said his name right, for ProPublica. Pro um, yeah. And who do I forget? You people. Who Who's in ProPublica? Uh, Ron Federucci, I think, yeah. is the way he's, he does campaign finance yeah. and has done some of the regulatory yeah. stuff. We were probably um, talking to two, you know, two good people to you know, get dirt on them. Yeah. So. <laughs> um, but what, I mean, so but you, you gave us some ideas yeah. about the, what the, the kinds of things we should be asking, but I mean, what, I mean, ideally, you know, in the same way we're saying th these interviews didn't get what they should have from Trump, well, what should we be getting? I mean, what do you, ideally, what do you think that these um, reporters and editors should be telling us that will shed light on the press coverage of this Well, first of all, I mean, think you have, an, uh, you have an opportunity to ask people how they interview people. And that's just really, yeah. really interesting because there are a million different ways to interview people. There's a million different styles. Um, I tend to sort of lump it into two different styles. One is the uh, aggressive interview where you're basically haranguing them into saying stuff. And that's what I do, and it doesn't work that well sometimes. Um, and the other is you're just listening. You're just like, a, oh, my. People are so, so unused to people being interested in what they have to say. <laughs> That if you just express great interest in what they have to say, that's a, that's really powerful. But but find out, 
I'm not a great interviewer, so find out from them. Yeah, what what you know? What do you do? How, what are the, what, how, and how do you? I think some of it is is they may not even be aware of the psychology that they're that they're applying. So get them to talk about that, and you know, how do they decide how to interview people? Do they interview people differently? And if so, why? Uh, those would all be very interesting questions. Um, I mean, me who they're interviewing too. I mean, especially now, right? Yeah. I mean, as we sort of talked about, there used to be a kind of clear hierarchy, and you could. You went to certain people to get certain kinds of questions answered, and that, along with everything else, seems to be somewhat in flux. So, and, and a huge issue is diversity of people to interview. I mean, it, it's especially you know the the morning, the uh, the Sunday morning shows you know, are sort of a bellwether. They're overwhelmingly white guys, and um, you know, I think anybody in this business should be making a point of not just interviewing white men. So what's the single best question you think we could ask these reporters? And, you, and by the way, we didn't even get yeah. to it, but I thought you, the yeah. questions you had for yeah. Trump were very good. Yeah. Um, and and I, I, I mean, what, the maybe you could talk a little bit about how what you. single best question is always, what did you know and when did you know it? <laughs> it's, always, it's always that. What did you know? You know how did, if, if, you're, if you're asking about something that shouldn't have happened, you ask them, what did you know about it and when did you know so if we find in, because we're also going to be looking at the reporting before we do mm -hmm. the interview. So if we find some way in which we think they didn't do as good a job as they could mm -hmm. have done. Yeah. Um, so oh, kind of I mean, recreating that, yeah. the decision making, is that sort of the, yeah. the yeah, idea? Absolutely. Yeah, um, I think that, you know, I don't know. I think all reporters should be incredibly thick skinned. But uh, so treat them like they are. They're probably not. Most, most are not. They're very, very, they don't like being challenged at all, but challenge them, see what happens, it'll be fun. Uh, I, I do think that there is, I mean, inter interviewing, yeah, there's so many different kinds of interviews, but an interview with somebody who you, where you're actually trying to figure out how they see the world and how they see what, how they, how they experience this, whatever it is that you're talking to them about, is, is interesting. Um, and you know, I, with with when you're interviewing someone like Trump, you sort of know what the terrain is. But if you're like a local newspaper reporter and you're off to interview someone, I had an editor who said if you can if you can write the story before you left, you know, the newsroom, it's not worth writing. You don't go in with a preconceived notion. So that's an interesting question: is when do you go in with a preconceived notion, saying this is the story I need to tell, this is these this is what I need to get out of this interview, and when do you go in saying, I'm just going to go find out what the hell happened. Um, the, uh, the other thing you'll find out in Washington, a very powerful thing, is to, uh, I mean, the way that Woodward works, for instance, is he'll interview a million different people and he'll say, this, I was told that this is what happened, is that what happened? Um, so that's... But sometimes he'll say that this is what happened and let somebody yeah. correct him or elaborate yeah. upon it when he didn't really know. Yeah, so I mean, basically saying, is this, this, this is, my understanding of it is this, is that correct? Is always a... A better question than how do you feel? But I mean, in thinking about the reporters now who are in the thick of it, right? Yeah. What 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 can we ask them that can really do you think can can get at what they're experiencing, right? So I mean, and so we're not just doing them. So how does it feel? Yeah, yeah. Ms. Yeah. Pace to cover this crazy White House. Nobody gets to ask that. Okay, but I mean, how do you? How do you do that, but in a... I would be prepared. That's, you know, 
I would read their work and I would come up with questions about their work. And if you ever have an interview transcript or you ever, you know, read their work and say, I don't understand this, explain that to me. That's preparation is when you're having a, you know, a somewhat confrontational interview with someone who is already on the record in any way, shape, or form is great. It's great. And just, and you know, they don't have to be hard, they don't have to be nasty gotcha questions. They could just be what, what, you know, I don't know if Julie has, if any of these people have transcripts of interviews they've conducted, but if they do, my God. Julie Pace did, did I yeah. think she, with somebody else, did a Trump interview. Did they? Uh -huh. Yeah, look over. Huh? Oh, was it really? Yeah. And yeah. it was maybe like in April or May? Okay, yeah, so, so just ask, we'll I mean, ask a million take questions a about the interview, about how did it, how did it get set up? Were there, what were the conditions? What ah, were the, not you what know, that's, uh, not that's super interesting because when you look at those transcripts, mm -hmm. they begin in bizarro ways, right? I mean. Well, they're often, well, I mean, any interview will often start with a, you know, with a joke or an icebreaker. No, but they don't. They, I mean, like the, the yeah. Wall Street Journal, it's like, it's like a list of stuff. Well, and often what happens is they'll have the off the record pre-chat, you know, right. and then they'll go, okay, now we're on the record. And that's what you're getting. But yeah, find out about that. But it seemed like these were the topics, right? D right? You, well, right. Do, do, do you discuss the topics ahead of, hand, ahead of time, either with your editors or with fellow journalists or with the White House or whoever you're interviewing? You know, I'd be interested to hear that. You know, how much pre, you know, how much planning did you put into it? Um, how did you know? How did you decide that? When? How did you know how much time you were going to have? How do you decide how to parse it? I mean, yeah. I mean, I would ask them very, very specific questions about their job rather than the kind of questions that you would ask me. As in, you know, why is it so stupid? Um, oh, we're also having Charlie Pierce. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> He's great. He's. Uh, He's going to do more. I mean, you're, everybody else is in the. This is my job. This is how I'm, and he's right. more in the pull yeah, back of it. Yeah, Pierce is amazing. He's amazingly good. Yeah, good. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't think reporters get asked about that stuff enough, and I think that's a great opportunity. And I think you'll be actually not only learning a lot, but creating something that's that's going to be worth looking at for other people. So, great that's idea. That's what we're hoping. Yeah. Great. <laughs>